Who is this Jesus and what is he doing? That's what today's text is about. We're just three chapters into Mark at this point, but enough has happened that people are starting to answer the question for themselves, who is Jesus and what is he doing? Not everybody's agreeing on the answers, which is starting to create factions. Some will follow Jesus. Others will resist Jesus based on who they think he is and what they think he's doing. I used to think that the who and the what of a story were the easy parts of the story. Why and how were the questions I thought required more interpretation, more opinion. But political and social events that we've all lived through over these last five years, for me anyway, make the goals of this morning's text make a lot more sense to me than they would have before. You know, in the United States, we used to start a debate, whether it was a a cultural debate or a political debate or a personal uh, debate, whether it was between groups of people or an individual conversation, we used to start those conversations on a shared foundation of agreed-upon facts, like who and what would have been our starting points. And then we'd work our way into the why and the how. But the polarization of politics and media outlets driven by profit more than a pursuit of truth, by design, there are powerful systems set up to pit us against each other so that we won't even agree on what is happening or who is doing it. The same exact problem is what's happening in this story from Mark we just heard. There are forces at work in our world, in our beloved nation, in our own church, that are the same forces Jesus was confronting in this text for today. So this is a sermon about who Jesus is, according to the Gospel of Mark, in the face of those forces that try to divide us, and what Jesus does about them, and then what we can do about them as baptized children of God. It's good news, because that's what I'm supposed to do with the sermon, good news. As readers, We're told right away in Mark's first chapter who Jesus is. At his baptism, a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And from there, Jesus moves on to the what. What does he do? First thing, he resists temptation in the wilderness. Then he proclaims the good news of God to whoever will listen. And that is that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, Repent and believe in the good news. After calling disciples, Jesus starts in on the rest of his doings. Mostly the what that Jesus does are physical healings and spiritual cleansings. You might remember the story of the man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. Jesus says, be silent, come out of him, and the unclean spirit comes out. Something like this happens again after Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, as Jesus casts out many demons, we're told. And then again, a few verses later, Mark tells us Jesus casts out demons after praying alone by himself. And after a series of healings and cleansing a leper and healing a paralytic, teaching about fasting on the Sabbath, we hear, whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. And that's when Mark tells us that Jesus goes up a mountain, he appoints 12 apostles to be sent out to have authority for themselves to cast out demons, 
And then Jesus, Mark says, Jesus went home. That's where we pick up our gospel for today. What do you think a homecoming would be like for Jesus? Baptized, tempted, newly famous for all this casting out demons work? How might his family, do you think, receive him upon his return? A nice hot dish, maybe? You know, run your clothes through the washer? No, not at all. Mark writes, His family went out to seize him, for they had been saying, He is out of his mind. Isn't that surprising? (laughs) We don't celebrate this story too often, right? Like, oh yeah, I know Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind. His family wants Jesus to tone it down because they're feeling exposed. Tuck it in, Jesus. All this authority and wisdom and power and strength, people are watching. And some people don't like what you're doing. Which brings me to the Jewish authorities. How might they be feeling about the work of Jesus thus far? I mean, they've been waiting for a Messiah. Wouldn't they be excited that God has gifted their world with great strength through this Jesus? Well, it turns out they've sent some officials, scribes, to meet Jesus at his family's home. And how does the scribe celebrate Jesus? He says, he has Beelzebul. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Not exactly an endorsement of what Jesus is up to. Of course, the leaders in Jerusalem, they're not feeling excited about the ministry of Jesus. They're feeling threatened. Their power is at stake. And so this scribe's job is to put Jesus in his place. Simple country bumpkin exposed by the prestigious city slicker from the temple. So here's Jesus back home in the midst of this great crowd, because now crowds are going wherever he goes, having launched his ministry, but now running into a family who thinks he's out of his mind and a religious official accusing him of blasphemy, a serious charge. So what's he going to do? What's Jesus going to say? They have misunderstood, either maliciously or out of ignorance, the what that Jesus is doing, and they certainly haven't yet comprehended the answer to the question, who is this Jesus? So Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's not who I am. In this text, Jesus is claiming his identity as the one John the Baptist spoke of in chapter 1. John said, the one more powerful than I is coming after me. More powerful, John said. Jesus has already been flexing his power throughout all these cleansings. Unclean spirits are falling down before him, and they call him Son of God. They know who he is. So Jesus says, Satan's end has come. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, Look at what I'm doing. I am the one plundering the strong man's house, Satan's house. So Jesus does not tuck in his power or wisdom or allow himself to simply be sent to his room despite the protests of his family. He does not show deference to the authorities. Instead, he uses this opportunity to clarify who he is and to clarify what 
he is doing. And he uses this opportunity to offer a word of warning. People will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, there's a whole other sermon here, but suffice it to say that the warning Jesus gives is far more narrowly focused than how parts of the church have interpreted this over the centuries. Jesus is just being very specific about this unforgivable sin. Basically, when you see the liberating and healing activity of Jesus and say that's the work of the devil, that lie is the ultimate insult to God. Giving the forces of evil credit for life, for grace, for mercy or peace is the ultimate insult to God who is the true source of all things good. That's the point Jesus is making. And this is where I come back to the beginning of my sermon when I said the political and social events we've lived through over the last five years make the goals of this text make so much more sense to me than before. There are forces in this world that just lie to us. More clearly to me than ever before in my lifetime, there are people who will tell us that what we just saw or what we just heard are not actually what we just saw or just heard. And that is exactly what was happening as people were seeing and hearing the good news of Jesus. The authorities and plenty of other enemies were just plain lying about him so that the people that were around, the crowds, would stay afraid, would feel confused, would seek familiarity, even when what was familiar was an occupied nation with no wealth, no military, and no future. This scribe shows up and just lies about Jesus, loud enough so everybody can hear him. And Jesus, not so nicely, says, don't. Don't. Which brings me to the good news. <laughs> Remember, I said this would be a sermon about who Jesus is, according to the Gospel of Mark, in the face of those scribe-like forces that try to divide us. And then what Jesus does about them. And I said it was good news, right? Because it is. The good news is that Jesus doesn't shrink in the face of this scribe or anyone else, in the face of these lies. Who is Jesus, the Son of God? What does Jesus do? He stays in the struggle. Always. Instead of shrinking, he grows through word and deed. Our God, it turns out, we are shown, was not born in the flesh to hide out somewhere safe and make statements from afar always trying to make sure everyone stays happy. Our God is not, thank God, some distant, disengaged deity having grapes fed to him while laying in the lap of luxury. Our God, made known through Jesus, stays in the struggle all the way to his own death, and then he doesn't even stay dead. Do we think that that struggle mentality, that truth in the face of lies, changes after his resurrection? Like, now that I died and couldn't stay dead, I'm just going to play it safer from now on. So I'm going to sit 2020 out. And 2021 also. These grapes are great. 
The good news is that Jesus, God's Son, the Beloved, stays in the struggle today with us, which means anyone who follows this Son of God, anyone claimed by the Beloved in their own baptism, has clear answers about our own who and what. Who are we? We are the church, God's beloved. We are made children of God in baptism. What do we do? We don't stay disengaged or distant from the struggles of this world, that's for sure. A church body that claims to be the body of Christ in this world continues the struggles that Jesus struggles with, struggles through, offering healing, cleansing through confession and forgiveness, real listening in the pursuit of truth, naming lies when they're told. I mean, how many stories in Scripture show Jesus struggling to include the marginalized? So who do we think the lepers of our world are? Who are those that the community doesn't want to see? Jesus struggled to bring them into community. Or who would you say are the demon-possessed among us? That's a harder question because we don't really think in that category. But who might be those who are under the spell of lies and hate? Maybe that's a way to think about it. Jesus struggled to free them from that bondage with compassion and grace. He kept reaching out. Jesus goes out of his way, struggles to include women, offer attention to children, spend time with sinners, because each of those groups in his day were not the ones in power. We may have different ideas about who the women, children, and sinners of our own time are, but we do all know that it is our joy-filled burden to stay in the struggle for those who are not only us. While we wait for his glorious return, the good news is that we know Jesus equips us in faith to stay in the struggles that include the excluded, that speak truth to lies, that free haters from fear, that show God's love mercy, grace, and peace at all times and in all places. Thanks be to God. Amen.